Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Jamie Harrison, the new chair of the Democratic National Committee. But first, before we dive in, I want to remind people that we have launched a new telephone hotline at the request of several listeners. The purpose of this hotline is to collect more staffer stories. They can be about anything, royal screw-ups, lessons learned, something outrageous that you saw in the cloakroom, or even the strange or meaningful story about how you got into politics. They can be anonymous or identified. The only requirement is that they be true. So please call in and we will play the best of on the air. The phone number is 1-888-416-2132. And we have the phone number posted on our website as well, staffershow.com. Okay, now back to our guest. I first met Jamie Harrison when we worked together on Capitol Hill. We were both leadership staffers and would often find ourselves standing next to each other at the back of a room known as HC5. It's a large room in the basement of the Capitol where the House Democratic Caucus met every week. The members sit in chairs organized in rows for this meeting, and staffers would stand in the back along the wall. Jamie was working at that time for a majority whip Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, first as policy advisor and eventually as director of floor operations and council. Jamie and I were also attending law school at Georgetown Law. So in addition to talking about work, we also stressed out together about reading assignments and exams and lack of sleep generally. Jamie left the Hill in 2008 and spent some time downtown, but he decided to make his way back home to South Carolina, where he started taking on leadership roles in the state party there. In 2013, he became chairman of the South Carolina Democratic Party, and in so doing, became the first African-American to ever hold that position. During that period, he also wrote a book. It's a handbook for staffers and aspiring staffers that he co-authored with a Republican colleague, Amos Sneed. The book is called Climbing the Hill, How to Build a Career in Politics and Make a Difference. It's available on Amazon. In 2020, Jamie burst onto the national political scene due to his challenger campaign to unseat Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, a race that set fundraising records and inspired millions of voters in South Carolina and across the country. Though Jamie didn't win that race, the experience gave the country the opportunity to see what an inspirational leader he is. Following the election, Jamie was nominated and subsequently elected to be chair of the DNC. He took over that role on January 21st. I am so pleased to be able to sit down with someone I like and respect as much as I do Jamie. Jamie and I recorded this episode on Monday, March 15th. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jamie Harrison, welcome to Staffer. Oh, thank you so much, Jim. It's so good to be on with you. It is wonderful to see you again and uh, to be here with you. Um, as you may know, I like to start my conversations with my guests uh, talking about where they grew up and how they grew up. So, uh, you know, I know a lot about your uh, your background, um, and so do so many Americans. But for those, you know, who um, haven't watched your, your Senate campaign, talk to me a little bit about where you grew up and what family life was like. Well, Jim, I, I was a little round-headed boy that grew up in a, a small rural town in South Carolina, Orangeburg. Um, I was the son of a teen mom. My mom was about 16 when she had me. Uh, and we stayed with my grandparents who, uh, who really raised me. 
um, you know, two amazing people. They didn't have a whole lot of education. Uh, my grandma, I think eighth grade, and she ended up, uh, she picked cotton and went and worked in the textile in industry and then did some domestic work. Uh, and then my grandfather worked construction most of his life. And so, uh, you know, folks that society would deem as, you know, just simple, hardworking people. But, uh, but in my mind, they were always rich because uh, they, they taught me the value of being a good person, of being a hardworking person. And so, um, you know, I, I stayed in South Carolina until 18. Then I went on to, to college. I was fortunate enough to go to Yale and uh, then went to Georgetown Law. I taught ninth grade social studies for a year or so. And worked at a nonprofit and then uh, went to Capitol Hill and that's where I met you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, how did you, how did you get into politics? So where along there did you discover that you, you loved politics and want to get into it? Well, you know, the first real introduction to politics, uh, my first political memory, I would say is uh, 1988, Jesse Jackson speaking at the democratic convention. Um, and, you know, Jesse Jackson was from South Carolina. I was from Greenville, South Carolina. That's where I was born and raised. Uh, and, you know, here's this guy who's on TV, who ran for president, who looked like me and is from my state, right? And he's talking about how young people can get involved. It was me, right? And so I would often spend time talking to my grandfather because, you know, in my house, uh, my grandfather, uh, we, we had one television. And my grandfather, uh, you, know, you could watch whatever you wanted any other time, but the morning news and the evening news, the TV was going to be there, right? And there was no, there was no, <laughs> there was no other choice. And so I would sit there and watch because I wanted to watch TV. So I would sit there and watch with my grandfather, and then pepper him with questions about, you know, what's going on in the world and the presidency and this and that. And you know, in retrospect, my grandfather probably didn't know half of the things. <laughs> <laughs> about half of the things he was talking about, but they made sense to me. And and so I was always infatuated with Washington and what was going on in Congress and the presidents. Uh, and, you know, I fed that that hunger uh, in school. And so uh, in, in my history classes and social studies classes and eventually went on to college, I became a policy major and I focused in American government, got internships on the Hill uh, in the United States Senate and the U.S. House, uh, and uh, you know the rest is history. Well, so your your first job on Capitol Hill, your first paying job, as I understand it, was with uh, Whip Clyburn, uh, yeah. Jim Clyburn, famous um, uh, political figure in South Carolina and now nationally. Um, how did you link up with him and get into the Whip operation? Well, it's a funny story. I first met Jim Clyburn when I was a junior in high school. He had just been elected in the because uh, my first campaign was the Clinton Gore campaign in '92, which also was Jim Clyburn's campaign. He had just been elected, and he was the first African American elected to Congress from South Carolina since Reconstruction. Um, and so uh, he got he got elected, and uh, that fall I had just gotten elected to become the president of the National Honor Society for, for my high school. And so for me, that was a big deal. So big deal. I, uh, you know, my advisor said, well, you could get somebody to come and speak and install you all as officers of the DNC. I mean, of, of the National Honor Society. I was like, oh, 
who can I get? Who can I get? I said, Congressman Clyburn. So I reached out to Congressman Clyburn's office and said, we're getting installed as, and I want the congressman to speak and install us. <laughs> and uh, they got a message to him and he actually showed up. <laughs> I love it. You know, that's actually such a characteristic of young people who end up succeeding is like the the courage to make the ask, right? No, to extend the, hand, the handshake first, right? Yeah, I didn't know any better. So I, 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 I did it and he actually showed up. And I told him afterwards, I said, Congressman, I'm going to work in your office one day. And he said, well, I want you to go to college first. <laughs> and, and he said, and then we can look at an internship. And so I never forgot it. And so when I became a junior in, um, uh, in college, I wrote to his office and said, you know, I, I'm very interested in being an intern in Congressman Clyburn's office. And that's when they uh, told me to submit an application through the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation Internship Program. And uh, that's how I, I, I did it. And so I was an intern in Clyburn's office the summer of 1997. Uh, I worked my behind off uh, as an intern. I was the first person to get there in the morning and one of the last to close the office down. And so they really enjoyed having me and they stayed in touch. So back fast forward in 2002, Jim Clyburn uh, is elected vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus. And he's looking for staffers for the vice chair's office. Well, I'm in law school at the time at Georgetown. So I'm driving, uh, this is like December of 2002. I'm driving from Georgetown, from DC to South Carolina for the, uh, for the Christmas holiday break. And my cell phone rings and it's Yebby Watkins, who's Congressman Clyburn's chief of staff. And I talked to Yebby and said, hey, Yebby, how, how's everything? He said, oh, things are well. I said, I'm so excited that the congressman's been elected vice chair of the House Democrats. That's so awesome. He said, that's great. And he said, it may impact you. And like, what do you mean? He said, well, the congressman and I were just talking and he wants you to come and join the staff. I'm wow. like, whoa. Yeah. I was like, he, he said, the congressman remembered how hard you work. He wanted somebody who was from South Carolina that was smart, that could get this work. And we both thought of you. And I said, well, yeah, I'm flattered. But, you know, I'm in law school at the time. I'm in the midst of my second year. He said, we know. So we can work it out. But he wants you to come and work in the office. Incredible. And fast forward. Lo wow. and behold, man. And but two weeks, I was th th that January, I was working in the congressman's office. So you start working in his leadership office. Yeah. He proceeds to ascend uh, over yeah. the years, uh, higher in leadership, and you stay with him and you elevate through his staff structure. That's exactly right. Um, you served as executive director of the WHIP operation and also as floor director. Can you describe everyone hears, you know, in high school civics, you, you learn about the WHIP. But can you describe for people what the the whip operation does? Yes. Well, and and the, you know the trivia question is: I ask folks, uh, where does this notion of the whip come from? Like, right? What, what's the position? Well, it it comes from, uh, of course, jolly old England, um, and it actually comes from the uh, the sport of fox hunting. Um, and uh, there were these guys, you know, the whole thing about fox hunting is, you know, you got a pack of dogs that are chasing after this fox, right? And you got some guys, you know, with, you know, your guns and all, and you got some guys that are sitting up on horseback. 
Well, the guys on horseback that are on the edges of the, the pack of hounds, those guys have little whips in their hands, they're, and they're called whippers' ends. And so, in essence, the, the whippers' ends' role is to keep the pack focused on the task ahead, which I is to chase after the fox, right? Oh, fascinating. So when you think about what is the role of the whip, it, the role of the whip is to keep the caucus focused on the task that, that is ahead, on the piece of legislation, on the bill, or what have you, and to keep them unified uh, moving forward. And so um, my job as the floor director in the whip's office was, uh, in, in essence, to to uh, to to count the votes to make sure we had 218 votes in order to get a bill passed uh, out of the House to the Senate and eventually to the White House. Um, and then we did that in coordination with all of the other leadership offices. Uh, uh, the speaker who is, you know, the speaker of the entire house, the, the majority leader, uh, who is the leader, the floor leader on the floor, uh, the caucus chair who convenes all of the members of the caucus. And our job was the whip, was to make sure that we, we sent whatever the democratic message is in the democratic position um, to make sure that there are enough of those Democrats who supported it. And then we would oftentimes, if we saw that we had problems, uh, we couldn't get to the 218, then we would use that intelligence gathering uh, to inform the rest of the leadership and the committees to make modifications so that we could get to the point where we had 218 votes to, to pass legislation. So in terms of that intelligence gathering, you know, I yeah. remember uh, having participated in some of this with you, um, the way the, the records are kept Every member of the caucus, you know, is is on a sheet of paper and yep. they're given a number. A one is a member who is going to vote yes and has yep. committed to a yes. Uh, a five is someone who has told you they're going to vote no. And obviously yep. two is a lean yes, three is undecided, four is a lean no. Uh, and all of our jobs are to get, you know, an, 218 ones. Yes. Um, but – so in terms of that intelligence gathering, tell me, what makes a good vote counter? Uh, well, it is it is being able – this is the thing that folks should understand about members of Congress. It is now not all uh, stories of courage, right? <laughs> there, are some, there are some members who are scared of their shadows. There's some members who don't want to tick off anybody, right? They want to make – they want to be nice to everybody. Um, and so oftentimes, you, as you know, Jim, we had to proceed in this, this effort that I call cleaning up the list. It is pushing people to the extremes. You want to know, ultimately, you want to get 218 ones, which are the yeses. But ultimately, you just want to get people into the corners that they're in. You want to clear out the leaning yes and the leaning no and the undecided and push to know do we, where are we on the yeses? Where are we on the noes? And if we, we don't have enough yeses, then that means we need to pull some of these noes back, right? And so uh, sometimes that takes some arm twisting to move somebody from, from a no or leaning no or undecided over to yes. Uh, you know, it, it, is, uh, it, it is not a task for the, for, for the, for the weak. Yeah. Um, 
and, and you got to use all of the persuasive tools that you have in uh, uh, <laughs> in your pocket. You, and what you, are those? Listen. So let's talk about those. So, you know, it, yeah. cause, you know it, the arm twisting, like it's sort of famous. Fam- I think most people probably think of it as just pure pressure, but it's not just pressure. There's cajoling, there's persuasion, there's education. What are the tools that a whip operation has at their disposal to try to move a member from a, a no to lean no position to a yes. Yeah. So in order to be a good whip, uh, the first thing that you need to do is you need to know the folks that you're whipping. You need to have some established relationship. You also need to understand what I like to call is their trigger. What is the thing that triggers them to act in the way that you want them to? Now, their members are not made the same. There are some members who are, you know, pure policy wonks. There are some members who are pure politicos. Like they, they can give a damn about the, uh, the policy. It's all about the politics. And then there are some members who are more constituent service driven, right? That's the thing that they really want to get in. So, and, and then you get all kinds of mixtures. You need to, when you're whipping, you need to understand the type of member that you're talking to while you're whipping. Right. Because then understanding that means then you start to understand their trigger. What is the thing that is so important to them that triggers them to act in in the manner that you want? So if you're if you're dealing with a policy want person, then the way that you approach them is with policy. You explain to them how the policy works. If it's a political person, then you have to explain to them in politics sense why this is important politically. And then sometimes that means bringing in political pressure, either internally or externally, in order to get them to to move. So there were many times, uh, and I can say this now because I'm no longer in a job, there were many times in which, you know, I would have to call into somebody's district and, you know, call the local NAACP and say, hey, now, you, you didn't hear this from me, but this bill is coming up and I, you know, if I were you, I would call your member of Congress and see where they are on, on this particular bill, right? Yeah, right. And and you no know, fingerprints. The, and the and the whole lead up to that of of understanding the members and their triggers is listening, right? Which is an underappreciated skill when it comes to the quote unquote whip. You got to listen to people before you can persuade them. Jim, that is such an important thing, and this is also part of what so. One of the things that we would do, we fed people in the whip's office. We we had food all the time, yes, right? That's right. All the time. And, and the members, some of the members in particular, I, I remember Ben Chandler, who uh, uh, was one of our Blue Dog members from Kentucky. And Ben loved Chinese food from Miwa, <laughs> right? And so, uh, you know, the key to Ben Chandler's heart <laughs> was, you know, I would go up to Mr. Chandler and I would wait for, you know, one of those weeks in which we had a really tough bill and some of our Blue Dogs members would be a little squishy. I said, uh, to, you know, well, Mr. Chandler, you know, I I could order some uh, Chinese food for me about this week. <laughs> <laughs> you guys always you had just, better food. <laughs> if you could just sit down with me a little bit and, and let's talk about this. And his little eyes would light up. It's like, Jamie, you know, I really like this. <laughs> uh, all kidding aside, you just have to, you, I would take those opportunities to really get an opportunity to, to learn about these members and who they were and, and about their kids and their families. 
and you learn, the more you learn, the more you also understand the picture of that member and what really motivates them. And so, um, uh, you know, I, when I think back to that, that time, I, I, it's so much joy. There was a lot of anxiety, but so much joy because I really, really uh, enjoyed that work and interacting with members in that way. Well, it was a meaningful and an impactful period of time. Um, let me ask you about one particular member, and that is yeah. Jim Clyburn, uh, yes. who you have spoken about as a mentor and a father figure, even. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, tell me what you learned from him, what he means to you. Yeah. You know, Jim Clyburn is as close to a parent as my parent, <laughs> to be honest. I call him my political dad. Uh, and probably every major decision in my adult life uh, since the age of about 28, 27, I've made with Jim Clyburn's input and his advice. Um, this is a man who is not big on the limelight. That's not that's not the driving force for him. Uh, he's not the member that is always, you know, the first to run up to a microphone and jump on the floor to give some fancy speech. So when he speaks, people listen because it's not something that, you know, he does all the time. He's very thoughtful. He has an understanding of our history like nobody else. Um, and, uh, he is so well-respected, particularly on the Hill, but also at home people, I mean, just look, I mean, this man, because of his endorsement, it changed, uh, the outlook of the presidential campaign without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and so he really is a remarkable person and, uh, he, he's extremely special. One of the things he always taught me on, on about folks and members on the Hill, he would often say, Jamie, on the Hill, he said, they are show horses and they are workhorses. He said, you should always uh, aim to be a workhorse um, because in the end of the day, it's about the work. He didn't care about who took credit of it, just, just wanted the work done. And so um, he's also fiercely loyal. He is an extremely loyal person and loyalty is so important to him. And you'll find that with all the folks that we call, you know, Team Clyburn, uh, uh, from the, the Clyburn extended family, it's all about loyalty. It's loyalty to him. And he's a member who will never do something that he uh, asks you to do something that he wouldn't do for himself. I, I tell you quickly this one story. I remember when I first joined the staff, Clyburn had his, you know, folks have heard about the world famous Clyburn fish fry here in South Carolina, where he, I mean, he's had all these major political figures and all come. And uh, my first fish fry, we're all there. People have been there. Thousands of people have come and gone. They've drinking and eating their fried fish and all this stuff. And it's time for us to, to like start cleaning up and we're cleaning up and everything. And, and, I asked, so where's the congressman? And I expected that he's already left, whatever. Somebody said, oh, that's him over there. And there's a congressman with a broom in his hand cleaning up, right? And my level of respect for him seeing that that day just went through the roof. Well, and it's never come down. Yeah. I mean, he's he is so res well-respected uh, nationally in Washington at home. Yes. I mean, all of that loyalty that he gives to his staff is is repaid 
um, you know, by his staff to him and to each yes. other and members, you know, which is why he's in the position that he's in within the, the House Democratic leadership. Um, I want to get back to you for a minute. So when you left uh, Mr. Clyburn's office, you spent some time uh, in Washington. You represented some nonprofit and for-profit clients, but it wasn't long before you decided to go back home and get into politics. Yeah. Um, you eventually became the vice chair and then the chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party. When did you know uh, that it was time to go back home and get directly involved in state politics? Yeah. You know, I always wanted to be involved um, in state politics. And, 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 you know, eventually I thought that, you know, one day I wanted to run for office myself. And so, um, so that meant that I, I needed to find a, a path back home in, in order to do that. Um, but, it, you know, I'd always been, uh, even in Clyburn's office, very, um, I got into uh, our state party and, and working uh, to help the state party. You know, one of the first things that I did was uh, back in 2006 when Howard Dean was chair of the DNC and, you know, we were, we had made it up uh, a decision as a party that we were going to add two new states to the early primary schedule um, because it was at that point only Iowa and New Hampshire. And we were, uh, you know, the Democrats had decided, you know, we want to make sure that we can add more diversity. Um, we, uh, you know, so it was South Carolina and Alabama as a possible two states to be the the state with significant black population. And then there was uh, Nevada and Colorado for a Western state. And so I got really involved in that process and, and happy to say South Carolina won out over Alabama in the end. And that sort of planted a seed that, you know what, I want to get more involved in party politics. I, I like this angle. Um, and so eventually decided to run for first vice chair of the state party. And, and then uh, I became the, the chair of the party. Um, and uh, and always, you know, under uh, Mr. Clyburn's guidance and leadership. Um, but it, it was a tremendous opportunity to really think about how you rebuild a party that that had kind of fallen apart. Well, so you you take on that role as chair in 2013. And in my, your, your tenure there has been compared often to the work of Stacey Abrams, right? In rebuilding and rejuvenating a Democratic Party in a state that hasn't had a lot of statewide success um, for Democrats. And in my mind's eye, I'm almost picturing like the movie about a sports team where the coach is looking at a group of talented players, but the team hasn't won in forever. And job one is not teaching them how to play better. It's teaching them to believe that they can yes. win. It's about hope, Jim. Yes. And, and that's that's the biggest thing. And, you know, listen, it, it, and you know how my story went. Eventually, I ran for United States Senate, you know, similar to how Stacey ran for uh, governor in Georgia. I mean, now Georgia has gotten to the mountaintop. South Carolina, we're still trying to get there. Um, but but we're well on the path. Uh, you know, listen, we don't have an Atlanta. If we had an Atlanta, then I'd be like, oh, it's slam dunk. It's done, <laughs> right? We don't have an Atlanta. But for the first time in a long time, there are a lot of people in the state because of the race that we ran and what we've been doing here that have hope that things are going to get better. 
uh, that we will get real leadership in the state. And, uh, and that to me is really, really important because you can't achieve anything without having hope that things will get better, without having hope that, that you can become what you want to become. And for a long time, I think you saw this, and it not relegated, especially to South Carolina, but across the South. And it's part of the reason why I talk about this concept of a new South, um, uh, one that is bold, that is inclusive, that is diverse. Uh, it is It gives somebody something, it's a point, to, to say, I'm going towards that uh, and I'm going to work until I get to that, get to that point on the horizon. Uh, and that's, that's where we are right now. We, we've been wandering the wilderness here in South Carolina for, for a few decades now, but uh, we, we, we see the mountain and we're going to start climbing and we're going to get to that mountaintop. Well, your race was pivotal for that. It was inspirational, not just on a state level. I mean, you you captured people all over the country and inspired um, thousands and thousands to want to participate in your campaign. You raised a historic sum um, for a challenger and really any campaign uh, at the Senate level. I want to read you this headline from The Atlantic, which I love. It says, the South has already changed, colon, Jamie Harrison lost to Lindsey Graham, but expanded Democrats' vision of what's possible in the Deep South. Campaign folks, um, we're trained on a lot of things, right? I mean, there's voter mobilization, there's communication, there's uh, grassroots allyship building, et cetera. There are all these different elements of, of campaigning. But this thing that you're talking about of hope and inspiration is not easy and it isn't um, it isn't obvious, so what do you think the elements are to running successful, hopeful, you know, ambitious campaigns um, outside of the, the tactical elements that campaign operatives are, you know, uh, raised on? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the first thing is going to the people, right? When I approach things here in South Carolina, I always tell folks is, listen, I don't always have all the answers, and no political leader does. Um, but it's about going into these communities and listening to people, because many times those folks not only know what the problems are, but they also know what the answers are. They just don't have the means to get to that solution. And so that is the role of a political leader sometimes. It is connecting uh, the folks who have solutions to their problems with the uh, with the means in order to get that those solutions realized in their communities, and so I have my ideas. Um, I know how to be a leader, um, but I also know how to be a good listener, and I think a good leader is a good listener. And so uh, it's about going into those communities, not just parachuting in and say, "Oh, I have all the solutions to your problems," but more just listening to them. And saying, I know that you have problems. What are your solutions? How can we address them? Uh, how can I help you address them? Um, and that's a huge step, particularly for communities in which people don't go to, it, where folks feel marginalized and, and ignored. Um, and I, I think that's, I mean, that's the magic that Stacey Abrams has put into a bottle and is just, 
I mean, she has just tapped into it like nobody has done so in a very, very long time. Uh, and she she's not ignoring anybody. And because in the end of the day, Jim, regardless of who you are, you can be a billionaire uh, or you could be, a, you know, a, a, a poor farmer in a rural town. Everybody wants to be seen. Everyone wants to be heard. Everyone wants to be valued. And that's something constant. Uh, but we don't do that in politics in the manner that we should. And I think if we did more of it, we will see much more success, particularly in communities that have been hit very, very hard and been marginalized over the years. Um, you know, the, the part that was sad for me is, but in addition to all of that, you also have to have organization. And here in South Carolina, we're still building the organization. In many of these states, you're still building the organization. So you got to have both. You got to have the hope, you have to have the inspiration, but in the end of the day, you have to have the organization that can help deliver the, the mechanisms to deliver the votes to the polls. Uh, and, you know, for some of us, it is, you know, flying the ship and building it at the same time. And that's why I think for me as DNC chair, it's going into these communities to tell these talented candidates that we can recruit. I got that part. You guys focus on inspiring. You focus on giving people hope. You focus on connecting on an emotional level. While I work with your state party leaders to focus on building the organization that can get the, the, the mechanism to get people to the polls, to fight back against the voter uh, 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 intimidation efforts and the suppression tactics. Um, that's that's the component that, that, that I hope to bring now as DNC chair. Uh, is to uh, so that a candidate is not carrying both bags, right? Mm -hmm. the, the role of a candidate, but also the role of, of a party. Uh, you, you can't win that way. So um, you have been DNC chair since January. Um, yes. And of course, on the top of everyone's minds in Washington, uh, Democrats and Republicans is the first midterm of a first term president tends to go against that president's party. And, uh, you know, it is reported that Republicans are licking their chops at their prospects and Democrats are working hard to reverse that trend, um, which you the have said. Republicans should probably get a few fire trucks and put out the dumpster fire <laughs> on the side before they lick their chops. <laughs> <laughs> right. So so tell me, how do we um, how do we avoid in 2022 what happened in 2010? I think if we continue to do what we did in 2020, which is organize, organize, organize. You know, Jim, the, the, the history book said that incumbent presidents don't lose reelection. Well, for the first time in 30 years, an incumbent president lost. History also told us that Democrats can't win runoff elections in Georgia. Well, we didn't win one, we won two. And the unifying theme throughout those bucking of histories is we organized in a way that we hadn't done so in a long time. And I believe that if Democrats can continue to organize and to do it uh, 24, 24, 7, 365 days a year and not let off, um, we will, in essence, see victory again. I mean, I believe wholeheartedly that the people the vast majority of people are on our side. Yeah. 
Our challenge is getting them to the polls, mm -hmm. getting them excited enough and getting them to the polls. That's what I believe our challenge is. So you are one of those few staffers who has gone from being a staffer to being a principal, right, as a candidate and now as as chair of the Democratic Party. I've always thought that being in the shoes uh, of a of a candidate, I'm using air quotes, even briefly was helpful for staff. And I know when, you know, when I was on the Hill, if people took, you know, or wanted to take a couple of weeks to campaign, they would take vacation, go back to the district campaign for a couple of weeks. I always thought door knocking was like the most important thing that one could do because then you are face to face with voters and you know just, you know, how short a window you have to communicate, to answer questions and how authentic you need to be, et cetera. You learn something uh, a lot by interacting yeah. directly with voters. My question for you is having now been a principal, uh, two different jobs and still one, what advice do you have for staffers about what you've learned through that experience that maybe you didn't have before? Well, well, one, you know, Jim, I don't know if you know, but I wrote a book a few years ago called Climbing the Hill. Oh, I sure did. We're going to get to it. Keep going. Yes. 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 So tell me. Uh, which we got was chock full of advice for some of the young staffers. But I would say now having worn the staffer hat and the also the hat of the behind the scenes guy hat, right, which is and now, you know, somebody that's, you know, a front guy, principal, I, you know. My advice for those, particularly staffers who think one day that they may want to run for office, right? Because there are a number of staffers that I think they see that as the launching pad. I think it's important to learn every single thing that you can about the process um, and never think that things are beneath you to do, right? It's important to knock on doors. It's important that to... Uh, uh, to answer the phones. Um, because why is that important? Because the most valuable and important asset to candidates, to elected officials, are people. When you are writing letters as an LC, when you are answering the phones as a staff assistant or an intern, uh, when you're doing the member hill meetings, um, or I mean the the constituent meetings as an LD or chief of staff, you are meeting with the people. And the thing that I constantly remind folks about this is that sometimes people go to Washington D.C. and Capitol Hill and they get elected to office, and they forget that the power is with the people and not with them. They get so they get to the point where they believe that they are powerful, like the power derives from them. But the way that I love the, the analogy that I love to give for this is that, no, the power doesn't come from them. In essence, they are the moon. And they reflect the power of the sun. And where's the sun and who's the sun? It's the people back home in those districts. They have the power and you just reflect it. So don't it. get caught up in it that, that you so think, oh, well, I'm a senator and therefore I'm all powerful. Hell no. You can be sent home just like anybody else. If the real power decides to wake up and say, you know what, we're done with you. And so as long as you always remember that, I think you, you'll, all, you'll stay grounded uh, and you'll stay humble and you will always connect yourself with the will of the people that you're trying to represent. Well, I'm really glad that you raised it. Um, 
uh, the book that is, it's called Climbing the Hill, How to Build a Career in Politics and Make a Difference. Uh, you co-authored it with Amos Sneed. Um, it's hard to believe how much you've done. Uh, and it includes authoring a book, Jamie. Um, I just It's available on Amazon. People should order it. Uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and I have a couple of questions that I like to ask that are yeah. recurring segments. Uh, and in the time that I have left with you, um, my one of my favorites is called In the Vault, a time when you royally screwed up and what you learned from it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> time in which I royally screwed up. Hmm. Uh, God. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, I try to be so thoughtful about everything I do. That doesn't mean I don't screw up. But I'm trying to think of something that pops that... that you know, I, I remember, uh, well, why don't I do this? A time in which Jim Clyburn really yelled at me. <laughs> yeah, let's hear it. And, and Clyburn was never a yeller, mm -hmm. right? That's right. So this threw me, uh, I was the ED of the caucus. Uh, and we were in the middle of, and you probably remember the Bill Jefferson situation. I do remember. And, uh, uh, Congressman Jefferson was a Congressional Black Caucus member from Louisiana who had been caught in this whole scandal about you know money and bribes and this and that. And the caucus was taking up this, you know, Speaker Pelosi wanted to take his committee assignment away from him. But there were members of, you know, the CBC and others who did not want that to happen at that juncture. And so Jim Clyburn was the chair of the caucus at that time and the convener of this discussion in this meeting. And so I was in I was in this this meeting with Clyburn and I think with John Larson and a few other folks. And I, I had said something in the meeting that I think as a member as a staffer, I probably should have just held uh, because there was other members of uh, in the room that I should have just said or pulled the congressman aside or, or sent him an email about it. I can't remember exactly what it was, but Clyburn looked at me and he spoke to me in a way that I had never heard Jim Clyburn you know, sort of elevate and raise his voice. And, you know, Clyburn has that sort of, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> deep, rich baritone, deep, yes, yes. The baritone. And he did it with this sort of a, a sense of, you will not do that again. Right? Yeah. And, and that was one of those moments for me in which I also had to step back and say, you know what, Jamie, you've got to understand the timing and the place to do certain things and when it's right. And you've got to be able to read the room because the tension at that level was uh, so high. Um, and I think I was just trying to tell him that he couldn't do that because of such and such and such, which it's fine most of the time, but again, it's about making sure that you understand and read the room and understand what's the right timing for you. That's right. And so I never made that mistake again. That's right. <laughs> well, and maybe the difference, you know, it may not have been the message but to your point, like maybe whispering in his ear, that's a different, that's a different animal. Um, yes. you know, um, that's a very good one. Let me ask you this. Uh, if I were to raise money to build a hall of fame to staffers and put it on the national mall, who would you nominate uh, to be in the Staffer Hall of Fame? Uh, uh, 
Number one, George Cadenas. <laughs> yes. Yes. So explain who George Cadenas is, because I'm, I'm right there with you. Uh, George has probably worked for, I can't even recall how many speakers of the house. Uh, he is in the house and um, he uh, is George still with Nancy Pelosi? Yes. To my knowledge, yes. Yes. Uh, but George knows everything. I mean, uh, there's not a scenario that can happen that George Condanus has probably not lived through. Um, And just always a respected advisor, a respected voice. Uh, He's not a front man, but, you know, when he speaks again, you know, people listen to him because they know that he knows what he's talking about. Uh, But George is a a, a great guy. And I always love seeing him uh, when when I when I would go up to the hill. Uh, you know, my former uh, chief of staff uh, and still a good friend, Yebby Watkins. He belongs there. Uh, I always call Yebby the unofficial mayor of Capitol Hill because, you know, everybody knows Yebby. Everybody likes Yebby. Everybody goes to Yebby. Members tend to love, you know, building relationship with him. And he is Jim Clyburn's go-to person. Um, but uh, Yebby was always a, a good person. I'm trying to think of who else I would uh, – would put on there, but those two just kind of jumped to mind. Who was still who's still on the hill from from my time? But yeah, uh, oh, those are two great ones and first ballot nominees, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, last question for you. You are now the chair of the Democratic National Committee. Um, is there a Republican, current or former, who? you really respect who you got to know, you know, working with, and you could point to as, Hey, you know what? That's exactly the type of member who represents their districts, deals in good faith. Uh, and it can be staff or member. Yeah. Well, I didn't tell you two that come to mind who I consider to be, you know, my political brothers, even though we're on a different side of the aisle. And that's my co-author for climbing the hill, Amos Sneed. Uh, Amos worked for Roy Blunt when I was working for Jim Clyburn. So he was in the minority whip's office and I was in the majority whip's office. Amos is just, he's from Alabama. You know, I'm from South Carolina, just a good guy. And uh, I love Amos like a brother. And uh, again, we don't look at the world politically in, from the same way, but he's just a good, good person. Uh, smile, there, light up a room. I mean, a- Amos is just a, you know, just a good old boy. And then also, um, uh, when I was chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party, uh, my counterpart at the South Carolina Republican Party was Matt Moore. Uh, Matt and Amos remind me a lot of each other in many ways uh, in terms of their demeanors. But Matt grew up like I did, poor working class family, um, uh, and he worked his way up. But Matt's just an, uh, man, uh, he's just a class act. They don't make him better than Matt Moore. And um, uh, he and I would often, when we were chairs, we would meet up, you know, once a month or so uh, and have lunch or coffee or something like that just to kind of talk about, you know, we were the only two in the world that understood the, the craziness of being a party chair. And we're both young guys. So, um, but he, he's just salt of the earth type guy. And, and I, I really, really respect Matt a whole lot. Jamie, it's a good uh, note to end on. I want to say um, thank you uh, first, you know, first and foremost, but also just how happy I am um, for the country and the party that you are where you are. Um, you know, the, the story you shared about seeing Jesse Jackson in 1988, you too have served and are serving as an inspiration to young people in South Carolina and all around the country. And 
it is an honor uh, to call you a friend. Um, and I, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for what you do. And thank you for sharing time with us today. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for, for having this, uh, this mechanism to get the word out. And I, I hope a lot of young staffers are listening and, uh, and learning about how to get better. They are. I'm hearing a lot of good feedback from current and former staffers. So awesome. I, I think um, you have a lot to offer. I could do this all day with you. So thank you. <laughs> well, again. I love this stuff, man. I love it. So I'll come back another time. I would love to have you. Thank all you, right. Jim. Thank you. Well, friends, I can smell the jet fumes at National Airport, which means another episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And please make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.